Multiple capital entries! Multiple capital entries! Intel one be advised you got a group of about 50 uh, charging up the hill on the west front. They're throwing metal poles at us. Well, law enforcement entries! Well, we need some reinforcements up here now. They're starting to pull the gates down. They're throwing metal poles at us. Mr. Victor, we lost the line! We lost the line! All the need to back! From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Rochester, New York on WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet, even during impeachment trials, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com, here with special coverage of the uh, second impeachment tri- Senate impeachment trial of Donald John Trump day two, but it's sort of day one. Anyway, <laughs> welcome to the broadcast. And I got to tell you, Desi Doyen, as we go to air, uh, they have just taken a break in, uh, well, day two of the second Senate impeachment trial of Trump on the article of impeachment for incitement of insurrection for the deadly January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. I'd say it's day two, but it's actually day one because uh, this is day one of the real opening arguments in this matter from the Democratic House impeachment managers. And boy, howdy, what opening arguments they were. Boy, howdy. Uh, As we go to air, the managers have been uh, playing some extraordinarily disturbing video from the assault that day, much of which has not been seen before. Unfortunately, a lot of it is security video from inside the Capitol, so there is no sound, so kind of tough to share it on the radio. (laughs) Uh, But just for fun, uh, before we got started here uh, just now, I was flipping between uh, CNN and MSNBC's coverage uh, where the anchors and the commentators are all pretty shook up from what they just saw just before the break uh, with that never before seen uh, footage. And just for fun, I flipped on over to Fox News to see how they were dealing with this disturbing afternoon. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, they're not dealing with it at all. Really? They are talking about some national anthem scandal in the NBA or some such. Really important things. Not telling their people anything, apparently, about what is going on in uh, in the U.S. Senate right now, which is just incredible. And frankly, while it should not be surprising to me, it actually is. I mean, this is an impeachment trial of a, of a president of the United States. It's historic. It's huge. And, and even that, they're happy to keep from their viewers, many of whom, by the way, I suspect, were in the mob that day at the U.S. Capitol. So it's just kind of incredible. In any case, uh, we got a lot to get to today. Uh, we'll get back to the Senate trial in a moment, and we'll be joined by a guest with some thoughts on all of this momentarily. But first, in not at all unrelated news on Wednesday, we reported at the beginning of the week that the Republican Secretary of State in Georgia had opened an investigation into Donald Trump's attempt to steal the election through intimidation and encouraging fraud in the Peach State where an unprecedented three different statewide counts of all of the ballots all found that Biden won the state by almost 12,000 votes. Well, now a new investigation is underway, a criminal investigation by the newly elected prosecutor in Atlanta's Fulton County, according to a letter obtained and reported on Wednesday by the New York Times. Prosecutors in Fulton County have initiated a criminal investigation into former President Donald Trump's attempt to overturn Georgia's election results, including a phone call he made to Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, in which Trump pressured him to, quote, find enough votes to help him reverse his loss. On Wednesday, Fannie Willis, the recently elected Democratic prosecutor in Fulton County, sent a letter to numerous officials in state government, including Raffensperger, requesting that they preserve all documents related to, quote, an investigation into attempts to influence the administration of the 2020 Georgia general election. The letter states, quote, this investigation includes but is not limited to potential violations of Georgia law prohibiting the solicitation of election fraud, the making of false statements to state and local governmental bodies, conspiracy, racketeering, violation of oath of office and any involvement in violence or threats related to the elections administration. In addition to... Uh, uh, Raffensperger, the letter was also sent to uh, some of the other top Republican uh, statewide office holders like Governor Brian Kemp, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, Attorney General Chris, Ca Chris Carr. This, uh, as I say, is the uh, the second news of an investigation of Donald Trump in Georgia. This one now criminal. A criminal probe, even as Trump is facing his second impeachment trial on incitement of insurrection. The phone call in which Trump harangued Secretary of State Raffensperger to, quote, find about 11,000 votes is included in his incitement of insurrection uh, impeachment article. So all of these things are sort of uh, coming together at this point, it seems to me. Uh, this inquiry in Georgia is the second known state inquiry after New York, where Trump now faces a criminal investigation there as well. Uh, and as The Times notes, it comes in a jurisdiction, the, the one in Georgia, where potential jurors are unlikely to be hospitable to the former president. 
Fulton County encompasses most of Atlanta and overwhelmingly supported President Biden in the November election. So we will be keeping our eyes on that. And that, by the way, is a state uh, that would be a state charge. Donald Trump cannot even have secretly pardoned himself for that if he gave himself any secret pardons, uh, because that only works on the federal level. Uh, Moreover, in Georgia, even if Governor Brian Kemp wanted for some reason to do Donald Trump a favor, which I'm sure he does not, since Trump has been attacking, uh, attacking Kemp mercilessly, Uh, For weeks now in Georgia, the uh, governor does not issue state pardons that actually pardons are only granted in Georgia by the state board of pardons and paroles. So so Kemp will not have to go on record about that one. And uh, that means that Donald Trump could be in trouble down there as well, as well as everywhere else, including uh, in the U.S. Senate, where, as I noted, it was the first day of the opening arguments for the nine U.S. House impeachment managers. They're uh, putting on, frankly, one hell of a case. It is ongoing even as we go to air today. So once again, forgive us as we uh, make all of this up as we as we go forward. They have uh, presented, they explained that they would be presenting this prosecution as if it was the prosecution of a violent crime. And having followed most of the uh, the arguments, the uh, case that they've been giving on Wednesday, I think that is the best way to cover it. As we go to air, they're in about the sixth hour of the 16 hours allotted for each side uh, to present their initial case. We will run through just a bit of what we have seen today from the House impeachment managers, which has been a compelling, detailed point-by-point case, making the case that not only did he incite this uh, attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, but he had been putting all of this in place for months. And they've made, frankly, what seems to me to be an airtight case. Jamie Raskin of Maryland, the head in the lead impeachment manager, called uh, Donald Trump the inciter in chief. He described what uh, he did on January 6th and in the days and weeks prior as the greatest betrayal of the presidential oath in the history of the United States. He called him a man who praised, supported and cultivated violence and noted that the uh, uh, the insurrectionists didn't just show up on January 6th. In, in fact, they were invited here by the president, he said describing a day that will live in disgrace. Joe Neguse of Colorado, another uh, manager, uh, explained that Trump told them, uh, his supporters, to stop the steal and to fight like hell. He told them this over and over and over again in advance. Yes. In advance of the uh, January 6th insurrection. And he instructed them, after telling them that for months, that today, January 6th, that's the day you need to come here when he then told them to fight like hell again and uh, finished his infamous rally in front of the White House instructing the MAGA mob to march to the Capitol just before the counting of the Electoral College votes in a joint session of Congress just before that was to begin. There was some audio from John Kelly here, Trump's former chief of staff, Uh, That was played by the managers uh, where John Kelly said Donald Trump knew exactly what he was doing. You know, the president knows who he's talking to when he tweets or when he makes 
statements. He knows who he's talking to. He's know, he knows what uh, he wants them to do. And uh, the fact that uh, he said the things he's been saying, the things he's been saying since the election, um, and encouraging people, no surprise again uh, at what happened yesterday. No surprise, says uh, Donald Trump's former chief of staff, John Kelly, former general. Joaquin, well, a number of them, Joaquin Castro, Eric Swalwell, Madeline Dean, Ted Lieu, Stacey Plaskett, all sort of walk through this step-by-step timeline of Trump and his lies uh, and incitement for months, months and months leading up through the attack, going back even before Election Day, going back into the summer of, uh, of 2020. In uh, July 19, 2020, uh, as Trump was 15 points behind in the polls, Joaquin Castro of Texas said that Trump was scared and that he would uh, announced already that he would refuse to accept the results in advance of the election. Tweet after tweet. Uh, making claims that uh, could not be true, that the election was going to be stolen, that he couldn't know to be true because the election was months away, but that it would be rigged and so forth. Um, But the point was not to tell the truth. The point, said Castro, was to uh, make his supporters very angry. Tweet after tweet charging the 2020 quote will be the most fraudulent election in history. Uh, with nothing to prove that, but just to make them angry. This is going to be the greatest election disaster in history. Because the only way we're going to lose this election is if the election is rigged. Remember that. The only way they can take this election away from us is if this is a rigged election. We're going to win this election. And remember, that's before the election. That's way back. Yeah, Uh, and he kept saying that over and over again, putting that into his supporters' heads. Uh, His supporters, who, as the uh, impeachment managers showed, believed him. Will you accept the result if Joe Biden wins? No. Under any circumstance? No. Why is that? Because it's lies and deceit and corruption because there's no way in heck our president is going to lose but yes it would be a rigged election there was some type of cheating went on what have you so if donald trump loses it will be rigged they knew that in advance they knew that going into election day they believed that in any event and then after election day of course they picked up Donald Trump's mantra to stop the count and stop the fraud. Again, tweet after tweet after tweet. Uh, as he said, uh, you know, stop the count, uh, stop the fraud. Of course, supporters in all over the country, but in places like uh, Phoenix, Maricopa County, Arizona, they showed up with guns to try and stop the count on behalf of Donald Trump, asking them to do so. Eric Swalwell of California talked about how for months Trump had assembled uh, the logs, the kindling, to have his supporters believe that the election was rigged. So if he lost, his supporters would be ready to light the match. He said he doused the flames with kerosene. And that this was not some uh, neighborhood guy saying all of this, that this was our commander in chief. He made claims that dead people voted, that they had found many illegal votes, none of which was true. None. 
And he noted that, uh, and this is somewhat telling, that the defense fund that he had set up after the election to collect money, and I think they've collected about $250 million, well, they spent about $50 million of that to target his base with Stop the Steal ads. And they bought those for $50 million all the way up to January 5. That's when the ads stopped because they knew that, again, on January 6th, the day that Trump had been targeting, that is when all of this was going to come down. Again, months and months in advance. Uh, And he started inviting people to to come on January 6th in mid-December when he sent an invitation to come to to D.C., And uh, as uh, Swalwell said, this would be his last chance to stop the peaceful transfer of power. So he told his supporters that the protest on January 6th in D.C., quote, will be wild. Now, even if you don't think that his exhortations to fight like hell during his January 6th rally at the White House before the Capitol attack, even if you don't think that that was enough to be described as incitement, well, Swalwell and Castro and all of the others detailed this point by point, tweet by tweet, uh, outline of how the message to stop the steal by fighting like hell at the Capitol on January 6th was repeated and it was well constructed and it was done over and over and over again. They then went through and laid out how uh, Trump had ignored all of his adverse court rulings, that in fact he had lost 61 of 62 cases in courts under federal judges, some of which he himself had appointed. Uh, how he went about pressuring and threatening election officials in state after state, how he attacked senators and members of Congress for not doing enough for him, that he pressured the Justice Department that resulted in uh, his own attorney general, Bill Barr, being fired or resigning uh, and then threatening to fire his uh, his the replacement. Acting AG, the acting, yeah, and yeah. also state lawmakers as well, pressuring them to try to overturn the election. And then attacking Vice President Mike Pence over and over again. Uh, So they went through, they detailed all of this, and Madeline Dean made the point, Madeline Dean from uh, Pennsylvania, one of the House impeachment managers, made the point that sort of underscores absolutely everything that took place, at least so far, in these past six hours or so of, uh, of presentation. The truth is, this attack never would have happened but for Donald Trump. And so they came, draped in Trump's flag, and used our flag, the American flag, to batter and to bludgeon. And at 2.30, I heard that terrifying banging on house chamber doors. For the first time in more than 200 years, the seat of our government was ransacked on our watch. She was followed by Congressman Ted Lieu of California, uh, again noting, how did we get here? Well, he said President Donald J. Trump ran out of nonviolent options to maintain power. 
They did all of the other things. He did all of the other things. He pressured everyone he could, everyone he could think of. He went to court. He pressured election officials. He pressured uh, members of Congress. He pressured his own vice president. He pressured the Justice Department. But he ran out of options. At least he ran out of nonviolent options. That last chance uh, was on January 6th. Uh, Stacey Plaskett uh, said that the violent uh, from the Virgin Islands and she was fantastic, by the way. Yes, she was. She said the violence was this violence was not just foreseeable. It was what Donald Trump explicitly encouraged. He deliberately incited this and everyone saw it coming. And the truth is, President Trump had spent months calling his supporters to a march on a specific day, at a specific time, in specific places, to stop the certification. And leading up to the event, there were hundreds, hundreds of posts online showing that his supporters took this as a call to arms to attack the Capitol. And in fact, she talked about how the White House had been monitoring those websites online that were uh, preparing for January 6th. One uh, meme showing the Capitol, January 6, 2021, the Capitol is our goal. Everything else is a distraction. Every corrupt member of Congress locked in one room and surrounded by real Americans is an opportunity that will never present itself again. That was on one of the websites that was uh, helping to organize whatever was going to happen on January 6th, where they were talking about violence. They were talking about bringing the zip cuffs, the zip tie cuffs that we ended up seeing in those photographs as the uh, insurrectionist terrorists broke into the uh, into the chambers. Plaskett said that Donald Trump knew that his followers were preparing for a violent war. The websites were very clear on this. They said, we must go to the Capitol. If we don't fight, we won't have a country anymore, echoing exactly what Donald Trump was saying, which he then said once again on January 6th at that infamous rally. We're in a fight for the survival of our nation. And we are going to keep on fighting. We will never surrender. We will only win. Now is not the time to retreat. Now is the time to fight harder than ever before. We have to go all the way. And we're going to fight like hell, I'll tell you right now. We will not bend. We will not break. We will not yield. We will never give in. We will never give up. We will never back down. We will never, ever surrender. Again, none of this would have ever happened were it not for Donald Trump. If that is not incitement, I don't know what is. That said, uh, they came back and Stacey Plaskett and uh, Eric Swalwell uh, unveiled unseen security footage of the mob itself overtaking the Capitol with specific plans and hopes. It was clear to kill, to assassinate both Vice President Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi, whom Donald Trump had been targeting for uh, weeks and weeks, in Pelosi's case for months, for years even. The video was chilling from the security cameras. I think it shook up a lot of the folks in the, uh, in, in the Senate chambers. At it least should. it should have. Yeah. But again, underscoring all of this, it is inconceivable that this would have happened had 
it not been for Donald Trump's months of incitement, not just the incitement during his rally at the White House on January 6th, but for months. That was the case that the House impeachment managers, frankly, laid out expertly as if they were prosecutors prosecuting a violent crime. So how does one respond to this frankly, brilliantly constructed and very clear case if you're the president's defense team? Uh, does it even matter if they do? Is this ultimately little more than a presentation to the American people? Because, well, enough Republicans in the Senate have probably already decided that they will not vote to convict the former president, no matter how brilliantly and compellingly organized uh, the detailed point-by-point -point evidence was. Let's take a quick break here. We'll speak with someone who may have some thoughts on this after her years in the Senate and at the Department of Justice and in our judicial system. Lisa Graves joins us next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Now they're planning the crime of the century Now we know what it will be. Now we yep. know what it was. <laughs> it was an attempted crime of the century to steal a presidency in uh, in broad daylight, I guess. Happily, it didn't work. Uh, joining us now, even as the compelling, detailed, point-by-point -point opening argument case is being laid out by the Democratic House man uh, managers, is someone who is actually able to look at this from, well, several different directions as a former deputy assistant attorney general at the U.S. Department of Justice, as a former chief counsel in the U.S. Senate, and as a former deputy chief for the U.S. court system, Lisa Graves is now the executive director of truenorthresearch.org, and she joins us again today. Olise Graves, thank you for uh, joining us on the broadcast again. Oh, thanks, Brad. Thank you for inviting me. Were you, uh, you know, and I've said this is all going on, and I've sort of compared it to building the plane even as we are flying it. So things are changing uh, even as we talk today, Lisa. Uh, but were you, years ago, were you in the U.S. Senate during the Bill Clinton impeachment years ago by any chance? I was at the Justice Department in the Office of Legal Policy. Is there anything that you learned from that impeachment while it was going on that, that might offer some sort of insight here as far as uh, how the senators sort of perceive these kind of, uh, of cases that are brought to them, um, that they are somewhat forced to pay attention to? Is it, how is it different from, you know, a, a regular justice, uh, a, a, a real uh, criminal court proceeding? Well, you know, uh, in my observation, um, it, it is the case that uh, the senators are, at least um, as, a, as a practical and legal matter, in a different standing than they are when they're, you know, sort of merely um, acting as representatives, not merely, but mm -hmm. only acting as representatives, because in this instance, they've taken an oath uh, to 
listen to this evidence fairly and impartially. Uh, whether all of them are um, is is not clear. <laughs> Certainly, some of the postures of some, like uh, Senator Josh Hawley and uh, the seat on the desk sort of uh, uh, routine and and more or seat on the you know chair sort of thing. But I think that um, for me, it's a little hard to compare um, that impeachment of President Clinton with this impeachment because the the situations are so very different and the stakes are so very different in terms of um, our country. You have a, a President Trump who uh, incited an insurrection, an attack on a, a co-equal branch of government, a, a you know violent effort to overthrow the results of the election, and uh, someone who could very well run again and is, is raising money uh, for his war chest and has been raising money for that war chest built on these lies that he's told about uh, the election. Um, and then the case, that case, uh, you know, more than 20 years ago, you had a president who was being accused of, uh, of a, basically a single lie under oath mm -hmm. um, involving uh, a relationship with a staffer at the White House. Um, not to minimize that, but they're, they're two very, very different situations, uh, two very, very different um, consequences in terms of the, uh, the effect on our system of government and the violence and death that resulted from Trump's actions and also uh, uh, impeaching a president who could not run again versus a president who could very well run again and has signaled his desire to uh, maintain power and continue to use politics as his uh, source of power. You mentioned that the uh, senators here are, uh, well, they're, they're required to swear an oath to be impartial uh, jurists in this case. But, you know, it, it, that seems, frankly, impossible in such a, a politically fraught circumstance. And this is not just in this particular impeachment, but in any. Uh, and to that end, you know, it... It feels in one sense, and I, I, I don't mean this as a slight, but it feels like a bit of kabuki theater in some sense. Because, you know, this is a fully political process, but it is brought as a, as a, a, a legal and criminal process, or at least it's uh, presented that way by the House managers. So it seems like they're prosecuting a criminal case, but the jurors aren't necessarily hearing a criminal case. It seems like there is a disconnect. Uh, is this something that uh, senators are keenly aware of, or do, do you have any impression, uh, whether it was back in the Clinton case, whether it was last year, one year ago during Trump's uh, first impeachment, or even now, uh, that senators are aware of that disconnect and are somehow able to actually be the impartial jurists that they have uh, taken an oath to be? Well, I think you've seen, uh, certainly from some of the Republican members, that they, in my view, have not taken these oaths seriously. And, and you can see that from the result of the first impeachment uh, trial of Donald Trump, in mm -hmm. which they basically suggested in various ways, some, many of them, that you know there was it was just toward the end of the presidency, only had a year left before the election, and little could go wrong. There was you know just let let the presidency uh, continue on, and um, obviously that was the wrong judgment at the time. It w rejected the facts that were presented by the House managers, and some of uh, obviously almost the entire same jury is present. A few members have changed uh, during the course of that 2020 election, but you have many of the same members who turned a blind eye uh, to Trump's efforts to um, to distort the 2016 election and to 
uh, solicit the uh, aid uh, or to solicit and, and pressure mm-hmm. aid from Ukraine in order to distort this election. Um, and those senators uh, did not hold him accountable then. And some of those same senators have, have indicated they are not going to hold him accountable now. And so I don't, I don't really see it as kabuki theater, ex- except in the sense that um, there's certainly some theatrics on the part of those who are defending Trump. I think that the House managers have have behaved with you know tremendous decorum, with the seriousness that this task requires. Mm-hmm. Um, they they have presented you know very powerful, compelling. Um, opening statements and uh, shared very powerful evidence. And um, I think that I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, confess that um, seeing my former boss uh, in the chair, uh, Senator Patrick Leahy, mm-hmm. um, it's certainly something that I am I'm, I'm so proud of him. He's a, he's a wise and fair person. And um, I know that he will be presiding over these proceedings with, with fairness and thoroughness because that's that's just who Patrick Leahy is, Senator Leahy is. But I think that, um, you know, it's not a criminal trial. Um, it's not a jury chosen, you know, um, uh, sort of just randomly from the community. It's a um, jury that has been um, put together in part uh, based on loyalty to Trump already. Mm. Do you uh, would you like to see I mean, you've already mentioned that uh, you thought that the House managers are doing a good job. Would you like to see live witnesses here? And if so, uh, who might you like to see, uh, Lisa Graves? Uh, or if I guess maybe a better way to ask that is if you were making this case, uh, who do you think would help, if anyone, to make the case better? The you know bringing in as witnesses some of the arrested insurrectionists themselves who said they were told to do this by the president, or some of the election officials who were harangued uh, by Donald Trump, like the Georgia Secretary of State, or even you know Bill Barr, Trump himself, his close aides. Uh, or do you think the case is enough, sort of the way they are? piecing it together from media reports and tweets and so forth? Well, they do have very strong evidence based on the record that, you know, modern uh, modern technology makes available to us that was not available to the founding generation, you know, to present evidence and information and uh, videos. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly think that it's appropriate to have witnesses, to have live testimony under oath. I think that Donald Trump should... Uh, you know, if, if I were in charge, I think he should be required to testify and required to invoke the Fifth Amendment if he refused to testify. Uh, he would be the number one witness. I um, come from the school of advocacy training that you should never put uh, someone on, on the stand, I suppose, other than the defendant if you can, um, uh, if the defendant, I suppose, is willing to do so. Um, you shouldn't put someone on the, on the stand who you don't know how they'll testify, and I, I don't know how many of these insurrectionists would testify. You can certainly see the mm. uh, charges against them, the statements that they've made, and some of the efforts to uh, try to get leniency by disavowing uh, their activities or by trying to blame Trump, which, you know, is, a, is, a, is rightful as well. They're at fault as, as well as, as he is. But um, I'm not sure that I would call um, individuals, uh, individuals who participated in the illegal activity. I, would, I think I would be inclined... To call people who are har- who've been harmed mm. by Trump calls for violence. 
Well, arguably, those folks have been harmed by by uh, Trump's calls for violence. Many of them are saying we were lied to. You know, we, we thought uh, that we were doing what the president wanted us to do, and now it's become clear that the whole case was a lie. Uh, but I do hear you. Uh, House uh, manager, well, a lot of the House managers, uh, I, I'm thinking uh, first here of Eric Swalwell of California. He was a former prosecutor. Um, he says that, you know, they are bringing this case like they're prosecuting a violent crime, sort of laying out how Trump himself premeditated the attack for months, uh, ginned up, uh, you know, outrage over all of this, even before the election, through his tweets, through his direct remarks to the media. Swalwell, you know, and, and the rest of them described this big lie that the election was stolen from him, as he said, for months, both before, during, and after the election. Now, much of what we are seeing, I was actually familiar with. A lot of these tweets, a lot of these claims. But how insulated are the senators from that sort of information, from the tweets, from the media appearances and such? Is it plausible that some of them are seeing this uh, this stuff for the first time? Or are they like you and me? Uh, we've seen all of this. Now we're just seeing it all sort of stitched together. Well, a couple things, and I, I would take your point, Brad, that there could be compelling, just to go back to your previous point, there could be some compelling testimony by someone who has truly and genuinely recanted mm -hmm. and recognized, um, not just for, you know, convenience, but recognized that the president has been lying and was, you know, uh, inciting uh, people like themselves. Uh -huh. But on your, uh, uh, to your, to your direct question here, I think that, I, I think that this is a situation where I don't think we can have confidence that many of those Republican members have actually seen some of this evidence, because so many of them are ensconced in the, you know, Newsmax, Fox News, mm -hmm. OANN, mm -hmm. um, uh, propaganda, you know, circle mm -hmm. of amplification of distortion, that I suspect that some of those members, if they are paying attention, are seeing some things that they never saw before, um, including some of President Trump, President Trump's tweets, because who could possibly follow all of his, his manic tweets mm -hmm. uh, of, you know, pushing this insurrection? And so... Um, I'm hoping that those members are seeing things for the first time, and we certainly had a Republican uh, senator who did indicate that upon hearing more of this, uh, he had changed his, his point of view, um, because I think many of them have been in this bubble uh, of disinformation that Trump has helped fuel, that Fox has profited greatly from, and now Fox is, is trying to manage its competitors, mm -hmm. uh, who have gone even further in some ways, although not further in other ways than Fox has in, in trying to backstop this president. Um, and so I think there's new information being provided to people who weren't paying attention, and that includes a number of Republican senators, in my view. And I guess that would include a, a, a bunch of uh, senators who, uh, who did not hear Donald Trump's speech at the White House when he directed folks to march up Pennsylvania Avenue and fight like hell. If you don't, we won't have a country anymore. A lot of the uh, senators and House members, I suspect, hadn't heard some of those remarks because, yes, they were actually in uh, in the Capitol at the time preparing to count the uh, the electoral votes. But Lisa Graves, if if as many um, people believe that there is no way that, oh, you, you know, for that 17 Republicans will actually vote to convict and that's what they would need to get a two thirds vote, uh, which, by the way, drives me crazy. The media pretends that they know how this is going to come out and it may come out that way. 
but it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy when you repeat it that way. Let's let them watch the evidence and see how they vote. But in any event, it, you know, it seems a, 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 a big ask for 17 Republicans to vote to convict here. Presuming they do not do so, what would you how would you describe the importance of uh, in any event of laying out this violent crime prosecution, at least before the American people? Is there still a value in that? And what exactly is that value? Well, I share your uh, your criticism, Brad, of the sort of notion that this is just a done deal, even though obviously some members have have demonstrated that they already have a closed mind and are complicit in it, like mm-hmm. Cruz and, and Hawley, for example. But I think that it's a very important um, act for the Senate to uh, hold this hearing, hold this trial. Uh, it's important for the sake of our republic. It's important for the American people to have our official governmental bodies um, talking about the truth, speaking about the truth of what happened, helping to debunk the just nonsense of lies and falsehoods spread by this president uh, that this trial, you know, is helping to rebut. I think that it's vital that um, under our Constitution that these proceedings take place, even if there are, are members of that body who do not have the courage, the moral courage, or the devotion to our Constitution to, to do the right thing based on the evidence that's been presented so far, which is which would be to convict Donald Trump. I think that um, there should be accountability for members based on how they vote uh, in this trial, um, and mm. people should be held to account for whether they are willing to speak up against this really unprecedented assault on our democracy, on our uh, legislative branch of government, on uh the rule of law and on uh, just the very notion of of how you determine whether elections are valid, which is the certification process that every single state engaged in. Um, so I think it's an important thing historically. I think it's important for our Constitution. I think it's important for the people, um, regardless of the outcome. Although if the outcome is that Donald Trump is not convicted, um, I am concerned that he will feel emboldened, mm. but I'm but that's um, mitigated somewhat by the fact that this is necessary. It's necessary to proceed with a vote uh, on a matter like this for the for for the matter of integrity, uh, the integrity of our system, the defense of our democratic process, and also um, Donald Trump faces a number of potential um, consequences for his actions. There could be other there could be criminal charges yeah. uh, based on his actions. There could be civil a civil suit against him for the damages his incitement of this insurrection and riot caused. Well, that's so, what, uh, as, a, as a former uh, prosecutor, does uh, this impeachment case being put forward, does that actually help or hurt? Does the impeachment process actually help or hurt the odds of a potential criminal case as you see it? Uh, or, or does it have an effect one way or another, Lisa? Well, I was I worked on crime policy, but I was never a federal prosecutor so I, I don't I don't want to pretend like I'm one on the radio. I think that um, <laughs> I think that that's okay. Uh, I do every day. But go ahead. go ahead. I think I think that there are a number of people who've talked about the potential criminal consequences of Trump's pattern of behavior throughout these past several months, uh, including uh, the news that has broken in the past 24 hours about the uh, opening of potential criminal charges in Georgia, in particular. But I think Georgia would not be alone. Uh, might not be alone mm-hmm. in pursuing such charges. And so um, this president uh, faces substantial p- personal jeopardy 
for his conduct, and he also faces a potential statutory bar on him running for office, uh, again, which can be passed uh, and adopted by a simple majority vote under the provisions of the 14th Amendment, which were adopted by the people of the, of the United States after the Civil War to prevent people who engaged or pushed insurrection from holding uh, office. So there are a number of consequences that are still on the table, regardless of the outcome, but I think it's very important for these proceedings to be taking place, for the House to have brought these charges, and for the Senate to be uh, trying them. Uh, last question, Lisa Graves, and it may be an unfair one, so forgive me in advance, but uh, as I said, I think it's a, uh, a compelling case so far, point by point, that the House managers are bringing forward. Uh, they are still mid-case. They've got, I think, 16 hours overall, uh, in all for just their opening arguments, essentially. That's before we even get to things like witnesses. That's before we even get to things like the uh, the defense's own 16 hours. So there's a lot to come here. But uh, looking at this, where we are right now, how would you possibly defend uh, the president here if you were representing him, uh, because frankly, I can't figure out how it would be done. This seems like an open and shut sort of airtight case at this point, uh, given the uh, the evidence that they've just presented in the first few hours. Well, first of all, I, I think I've got the wisdom to never, ever be a lawyer for Donald Trump under any circumstances. So this is a hypothetical that shall never come. Correct. You are, you are asked to be to play one on the radio. How the hell do you even come up with a case that responds to this? Well, it's clear that the the strategy that uh, the the Trump apologists are taking is to try to pretend like this is somehow not a legitimate process to yeah, impeach him after he's left office, even though uh, that that barring someone from office is one of the consequences, and a president is responsible for his or her actions from the moment he or she is sworn in on January 20th until the moment his or her successor takes office. Right, so they and they've already, lost, they've already lost that argument on the, on the first day when they had a yes. vote on this. It's, they've, it, they voted, it's constitutional, so they move ahead, and, I mean, they can't still continue to make that argument, I, I presume. Well, I think that they will uh, make it as, you know, it's in essence a jury nullification argument to try to claim that because McConnell refused to hold a trial before Trump left office somehow... Trump escapes uh, any accountability in the Senate. I think that that's probably where they're headed. But on the on the factual arguments, it's not clear what arguments uh, they'll be making. I'm sure they'll be trying to smear the the largely uh, widely peaceful protests of civil, over civil rights last summer. We've seen that in the right wing media. This mm. effort to make this false equivalency argument, mm-hmm. this you know discreditable, out, outlandish effort to uh, equate. Um, equate uh, those those things, um, but I think that I, I think that uh, it's not clear that because of the the either the thrall or the fear that some of these members have for Trump, whether um, any actual factual arguments will dissuade them from uh, voting with him for fear of him trying to um, run uh, someone against them in a primary challenge. Perhaps it'll be 16 hours of that Bruce Castor attorney sort of <laughs> rambling about and meandering and using up as much time as he can. Uh, because, uh, you know, they, you're right. I, I mean, it doesn't seem like they really have anything to come back with, I guess. Yeah, let's attack well, BLM. That'll do it, I guess. <laughs> well, the, well, and I, I do think, I mean, it's interesting that I, I don't 
want to give too much credit to some of the so-called conservative legal scholars who have come out and said, of course, the impeachment process can be used, can be applied to someone who's no longer in office. Um, Of course, this is constitutional to proceed. But it is a fact that there is no constitutional bar on a proceeding uh, for impeachment once someone has left office. And so, um, as you and as you point out, Brad, the the Senate already voted and uh, and voted against that very proposition. But I think that that's uh, really where they're going to be making their argu- their arguments, if not publicly, then behind the scenes within that caucus, as a way for them to justify uh, their vote uh, when they stand for election next. Uh, yeah, I mean, it sort of occurred to me when they voted on uh, Tuesday that, uh, you know, ultimately the defense, uh, Trump's defense attorneys came up with some argument. I did not, frankly, understand a word of the argument that they presented uh, to, to argue that this was not constitutional. But they eventually started making one. And my feeling was the senators, the Republican senators looked at it and said, ah, it's not a very good argument, but it is a argument. We'll take it. We'll vote for it. Uh, I, I guess they'll be on the lookout for something like that as well uh, in the days ahead. Uh, yeah. And we may give you a shout again, uh, Lisa Graves, in those days ahead. Lisa Graves is the executive director of TrueNorthResearch.org. She has, uh, for many years now, spearheaded all sorts of investigations that have led to major breakthroughs uh, when it comes to, uh, oh, you know, folks like the Koch brothers and uh, the American Legislative Exchange Council. She's a former deputy assistant attorney general at the Department of Justice, a former chief counsel in the U.S. Senate and a deputy chief for the U.S. court system. Always great speaking with you, Lisa. Uh, Thanks for uh, jumping in in the middle of all of this. And again, uh, don't be alarmed if we give you a shout in the days ahead. Thank you so much, Brad. It's always a joy and an honor to be on your show. Thank the, you. The joy and honor is always mine. You can also find her on the Twitters at the Lisa Graves. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Brad. Thank you so much. All right, we're going to take a quick break and come back. Don't worry, Desi. <laughs> we'll try Don't to worry. get it in. We're, we're going to get it in today. Don't worry. We had Yay. to cancel the Green News Report yesterday for lack of time. We won't make that same mistake today. That's straight after this. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. The Bradcast and The Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Once again, it's one of those days where, ironically, we turn to Desi Doyen <laughs> to cheer things up. Yeah. Uh, believe it or not, but it is, a, it is a fun one. Yes. Mostly. <laughs> Our latest Green News report. Now experts are saying that global warming may be to blame. Rescue operations underway after massive glacier burst in India. We don't know right now whether the breach originated from within the United States or outside the country. Hacker tried to contaminate Florida City's drinking water. Plus... We're going to crush those losers. Crush them! GM's new all-electric Super Bowl ad... I hope you will make it real. If you do, we can have a Macrell slap fight. Gets hilarious pushback. All of that hilarity and more straight ahead. 
from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Hello, America. Thanks for noticing us. We weren't even sure you knew we existed. Oh, hello, Norway. You are who again? This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, that GM electric vehicle Will Ferrell story is pretty funny, but for some much less funny news, unfortunately. Yes, unfortunately, a hacker using remote access software gained access to the water treatment plant of the city of Oldsmar, Florida, near Tampa Bay on Friday. City officials said the hacker vastly increased levels of sodium hydroxide, commonly known as lye, in the city's drinking water. An operator saw the intrusion in real time and restored the chemical to safe levels. According to Pinellas County Sheriff Bob Galtieri, the public was never in danger. Even if the plant operator had not quickly reversed the increased amount of sodium hydroxide, it would have taken between 24 and 36 hours for that water to hit the water supply system and there are redundancies in place where the water had been checked before it was released. An investigation is underway, but the incident underscores cybersecurity experts' copious warnings that the nation's aging critical infrastructure systems are in desperate need of upgrades, especially in underfunded local governments. It's incredible to me that a hacker could essentially poison the water supply just with a few keystrokes on his computer. Yep. In northern India, emergency rescue operations are underway after a massive piece of a Himalayan glacier broke off on Sunday, triggering an avalanche and a massive surge of water down a river that swept away two hydroelectric dams and several bridges. As we go to air, 26 are confirmed dead, Mm. hundreds are missing, and yes, scientists say man-made global warming likely played a role in destabilizing the glacier. A recent study confirmed the rate of Himalayan glacier melt has doubled since 2000. Scientists had also warned repeatedly that such large hydroelectric development projects were too dangerous for the already fragile region. And communities around the world face the growing threat of so-called outburst floods when glacier runoff builds up behind ice dams and mountain lakes. New research published just last week found evidence of a direct link between human-caused global warming and the growing risk of an outburst flood in the Andes Mountains of Peru. The researchers concluded with 99% certainty that the increased risk of these floods in Peru would effectively not exist without man-made global warming. Of course. Meanwhile, rough earnings announcements for the oil industry, even before the pandemic crushed demand, the oil industry was already showing signs of weakening. Super majors BP and Chevron announced last week that each lost more than $5 billion in revenue in 2020. The biggest, ExxonMobil, posted a loss of $20 billion in 2020, with revenue down more than 40%. Well, boo-hoo. And if Sunday's Super Bowl ads are any indication, it's not going to get better for big oil. General Motors kicked off its huge announcement last week that it's going all electric by 2035 with an expensive ad starring comedian Will Ferrell, who was not touting the environment or climate change, but the fact that the U.S. has fallen behind in the race to lead the global electric car market to more progressive countries like Norway. Did you know that Norway sells way more electric cars per capita than the U.S.? Norway. (laughs) 
We're gonna crush those losers. Crush them! Let's go, America! Norway, where more than half of all new vehicles sold are electric, seemed pretty entertained by the ad. U.S. carmaker Ford hilariously clapped back with some digs, highlighting that unlike GM, Ford already sells EVs in Norway. GM sells no EVs in Norway. Why would they bring that up and let Ford come in and say, yeah, well, you can come buy our electric Mustangs we sell there. Georgetown University Business School professor Melissa Bradley told the Detroit Free Press, quote, it's a hell of a move to go head-to-head with a country where you don't even sell what they're trying to buy. Hilarious. I love it. I don't know if it's good for GM or if it's good for Ford, but I think it's good for us and for the planet and for EVs moving forward. Love it. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide, even in Norway, on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyle. And this has been your Green News Report. I love you so much, let's move to Norway. We'll be happy beyond the fjords and Oh, we will be there soon. Yes, that's a much fun, more more fun way to end the show. Yeah, can we move to Norway? (laughs) I know, they have so much more fun than we're having right now. Well, until then, uh, we will return tomorrow for another (laughs) thrilling edition of the broadcast from right here in the great United States of America with our special coverage, I suspect, of the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump. That will be continuing, like it or not. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Lisa Graves of TrueNorthResearch.org, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it anytime for free at Bradblog.com. All thanks to those of you who stop by Bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay 100% listener-supported. Bradblog.com slash donate. You're all we got left. Uh, You can uh, drop me an email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. That's it. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Na-na-na-na. Na-na-na-na-na-na-na. Na-na-na-na. Na-na-na-na.